Shaivism, the the some would say the contrived dichotomy between Shaivism and Buddhism, or 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 between Hinduism and Buddhism and the concept of the self. Because when you look at uh, Tantric Shaivism and Tantric Buddhism, uh, they're very, very similar. You know, Vajrayana Buddhism or even Zogchen. And you look at uh, what Abhinavacharya taught and Kashmir Shaivism. You can very clearly see that they're coming from the same root, you know. And even the iconography is so similar. You know, Tibetan Tantric iconography, Nepali Tantric iconography, and uh, and they, these are these are fused together in Nepal. If you want to see what uh, in a film I made uh, recently, I had gone to Nepal, and um, um, and Pratapaditya Pal, in fact, had sent me there to meet some of his his, his colleagues. And uh, if you want to see what Buddhism looked like pre twelfth century, you have to go to Nepal, and you see it's complete. It's fused together with what we call Hinduism today. You know. These are born from the same. Um, so this brings me to, to my next uh, point, which is Tantra has, now one may call it a semantics, but when you apply it to the real world and to the human mind and emotions, it has, a diff, it has a, a definitely a different way of approaching uh, uh, you know, the mind and uh, the, the mind-body complex, the human being, and the human's role in this world. You know, and there is in, in, in the Vedantic school, and maybe you could say that, okay, some people are constitutionally, uh, you know, they are more uh, sort of suitable for a certain path, and others have, uh, take more easily to the Vedantic path. And this is something that people, and in, in our culture, in our dharma, you have uh, different parts which are designed for different types of people because we are not all the same. It's as simple as that. So the Vedantic uh, path, uh, you know, it stresses on uh, worldly renunciation to a high degree and the rejection of the, of the material uh, pleasures and the rejection of the world of the senses and, and all of that because... Uh, it's seen as something where you can get enslaved to the senses. You know, you can become a, a slave to your senses and your passions. And then before you know it, you're just on a downward spiral and you've lost sight of the goal. And um, uh, uh, so if we are taught to reject it and we are taught to aim higher. And you say, when you say neti, 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 you know, you eliminate. Whereas in the tantric school, you are taught that uh, um, uh, the world is not Maya, the world is Brahman. It's a very powerful statement, you know, and there is a Sanskrit corollary to this. I'm not able to recall right now, but there is a phrase in, a, in, a, some te in several texts which uh, summarize this. Uh, and uh, Lakshmanju Maharaj also who my, you know, my grandfather actually hosted him in his house in, in, in Srinagar and my great-grandfather. And uh, so he, he would say this all the time. And he would talk about the organs, of course. And he had a, you know, he was talking about tatvas in Kashmir Shaivism. We have uh, many, we have 52 tatvas, you know, which is a lot more than the conventional uh, structure of Samkhya, as I can yeah. understand it. So... Um, what, what I'm saying is that 
um, when you have practices such as chod in, Tibet, in Tibetan Buddhism, you chod, chod, which is when you feed, it's called feeding your demons, you know, and they teach you how to play, how to work with your destructive emotions. And they recognize that these things are true and these things are intrinsic to the Kali Yuga. And uh, there is no way to come around it for most people have to deal with it. And therefore, uh, you know, the spiritual practice must incorporate these emotions and these sentiments and these reactions to the world around us. Because if you say the world is Brahman, then accordingly, we have to have a system that teaches us to navigate this world, right? Because this world comes with many pitfalls and traps. And, um, and the second notion about the renunciation. Now, there are schools of Hinduism which say that, look, you know, you have dharma, artha, kama, and moksha. You have different stations in life. You have the merchant who is as necessary as the priest. You know, he, he plays an integral role, a vital role in society, just like the kshatriya. So these things cannot be negated by saying the world is Brahman. Therefore, let us kind of get rid of all these things. You know, I mean, the, the world runs on its own. You know, it has a certain pace and it has a, uh, you know, it has a trajectory and it has a structure. So you cannot do away with it after all. This is manifested with Shakti. You know, whether that Shakti manifests as, a, as political power, as a, a financial power, or even, uh, you know, a, a rock star with a following of 100, you know, 100 million devoted fans or a Hollywood movie star, you know, who, have, who are, people are crazy about. These people have in their own way, whether they, you know, they have a harnessed Shakti. This is a form of Shakti when you can command the loyalty of like millions around the world through your art, you know, clearly you have, you know, harnessed that force. Now, whether it's for evil or for good, because a politician can use it for evil or for good. So it's up to him. It's like nuclear energy, you know. You can use it to destroy or you can use it to light up an, a, a whole country, you know, and provide power and uh, electricity and uh, means of livelihood. Or you can destroy the planet like, equally. So uh, this is Shakti in my understanding. And how do we harness it? And this is the root of Tantra, of all Tantra. You know, it teaches us to how to harness this energy. So coming to that, point. Um, because in my life, I've seen it, uh, you know, play games with me on various levels. And uh, I've been able to harness it. But there are points in my life where I have been sucked in the undertow, because the tide is so strong, when you jump into it, it just carries you along. And sometimes it can dash you on the rocks, you know, because this is not something that you can control very easily. And, you know, they talk about Tantra and they talk about doing Tantric exercises and all that. But very few people grasp the meaning of that, you know, because this is raw power. And if you want to play with it, you have to be a very high, you know, a siddha of tremendous uh, power and understanding and accomplishment. So um, coming to that, um, a look at our Prime Minister Modi, you know, what kind of power has he harnessed in his life? And, and look at what he has gone through and look at where he is today and look at the forces from both sides, you know, that are lifting him up and that are tearing him down. You know, this is a personification 
to me when I see it, the big picture of what's going on in politics in India today. Um, so anyway, I, I tend to digress. So please excuse my digression. Coming back to the point, how can we use uh, uh, Tantric Shaivism and the practices given to us by our rishis to harness and channelize these emotions, both uh, emotions and forces, the, uh, the, the desire, the power of desire, Itcha Shakti, because that is what makes us who we are, right? And without well, that, there would be any, yeah. nothing, nothing, there would be nothing. I sort of differ from um, some um, standard academic accounts of the separation between the Tantric way and the Vedic way, because the Veda itself speaks about Samudra Manthan as a central idea. Samudra Manthan within each individual at the cosmic level or within the, each individual, you have the Asuric and the Daivic Shaktis within, and you have to go through that heat and that suffering that heat is suffering before vibhutis can arise. And then uh, in the Vedic period, the rishis were not, uh, uh, they were not, uh, they had not left society. They were all householders. They were a part of society. So they were not renunciates. This renunciation uh, can only be seen in a big way well, maybe in India, you had the tradition of the Jainas and uh, Ajibikas and so on. But in the Vedic river, you can see it only with Shankara. So that's really not the mainstream. Now, that's one point. Second is that even Shankara, although he spoke about uh, uh, Brahma Satya and Jagan Mithya, that, uh, you know, Brahman is Satya and Jagan is Mithya, it, I think this needs to be, you need to step back and interpret it uh, fairly because when you say that this Jagat is Mithya, what you mean is that it's not permanent and nothing is permanent. And in reality, even a Shankara... Shankara. Yeah, so Dr. Kark, uh, we got interrupted, but we were talking about how to harness uh, these uh, practices especially uh, uh, Tantric Shaivism and the Tantric uh, side of uh, uh, Shaivism and Buddhism and how that can be harnessed to, um, you know, to lead a better life and to channelize our energies, both destructive and creative, uh, into leading a more productive and prosperous life instead of getting uh, dragged into uh, the undertow. Of, uh, of our emotions and senses, uh, where you know, we are told to, uh, uh, one tradition tells us to reject the world and the other tradition tells us to embrace the world. And uh, you had started talking about that. So can we get back into that? Yes, uh, I, I believe that uh, the Vedic way uh, says that you must uh, accept the world. And in fact, that's what Krishna, for example, tells Arjuna in the Bhagavad Gita. He says, even if you run away from the world and find yourself in a forest, your mind would still be full of all kinds of ideas. You'd still be doing action. You'll still be doing karma. So really, um, uh, you can't run away from the world unless you have such a temperament that you do want to, which is perfectly fine. A young person or a person in the middle age can become a sadhu or a sannyasi. And that's fine, but 
such people would be rare for most people uh, the natural path is to be a part of this world and you should be able to find meaning in life while being a part of this world or get all the wisdom and proof and experience of uh, divinity or experience of self or experience of you being Shiva, Shivoham, while being a part of this world. So that is the whole idea. Now, the opposites reside within each as uh, the Vedas tell us, the Asuras and the Devas. Who are the Asuras? Asuras are those aspects of our life where we associate with the body and the Daivas are, the Devas are those parts of the life which are or of our being which are uh, associated with meaning. So materiality and the higher meaning, these are two complementary things. And uh, we can, as we obtain some meaning, we can, if we didn't control our ego or ahankar, we can then feel so powerful in our asuric nature that it can sidetrack us from our path. In fact, that's precisely what um, uh, Yoga Sutra also says. And in fact, I must also say in order to, again, emphasize this whole idea of this commonality, that really what is uh, the Hindu tradition at heart is yoga. Yoga is the practice, joining. Yoga means joining. It's joining of all these opposites within us through a variety of practices. And these practices can be seen through the complementary lenses of the various darshanas and other traditions. You know, you could say, I'm a ritualist, so you are a mimansak. Or you do vaisheshik, you're analyzing uh, materiality around you. Or you analyze language and grammar, so you are into nyaya. Or you do sankhya, you are analyzing the tattvas according to Sankhya, 25 tattvas, according to Kashmir Shaivism, 36 tattvas. But these 36 are really the same 25 plus 11 rudras. In fact, that's what we are told. And 11 rudras are 11 different levels of manifestation uh, of uh, concealment and unfolding of Shiva. So 25 plus 11 is 36. So, uh, so this is, uh, which is, which again, what I'm emphasizing here is, again, uh, the, the ideas as are already a part of the Vedic river from which all of these sub-traditions and agamas um, are derived, not directly, indirectly, because indirectly in the sense, for example, in all the dialogues and the agamas between Parvati and Shiva, where Parvati asks, Shiva specific questions, and then Shiva expounds on the answers and says, you know, what means what. So that is the agamic, the tradition uh, way of, uh, of, uh, of explaining where the ultimate, uh, ultimate understanding can be obtained, in my view, by going to the categories that are most explicitly described in the Vedas. Now, I also want to touch upon another question. Um, uh, the identity of Shaivism and Buddhism was explicitly mentioned, for example, in, in Java, where we speak of the 
Buddha Shaiva Dharma. In fact, uh, the the big the slogan of the Indonesian state is Bhinnek Tungal Aika in in separateness in Bhinna Bhinnahood is is unity, right? It's it's a Sanskritic uh, uh, slogan, and Shiva and um, Vishnu are seen two aspects of the same uh, reality. In fact, and I would be totally uh, fine with that because the the Vishnu the, the the Buddhahood is to use buddhi buddhi as a part of the complex of the mind intelligence uh, and up going up. While the Shaivite path is to come down from the Atman to take advantage, to fly on the wing of, of Chamatkar, of magical transformation. Because when Shiva gives or smiles at you or, or gives you that boon, gives you that prasad, then suddenly you obtain insight that you didn't know existed before. So these are two opposite sides. And we see that th this was recognized in all of Central Asia, all the way from the Caspian Sea to China. Shiva was also a part of the divinities in all of this region. Even the Zoroastrians in included Maheshwara as one of the divinities. You know, they had Zurvan as Shravan, as time, and then Adi Bhaga as Indra, and then they, they had Maheshwara. And likewise, um, uh, Maheshwara was worshipped in Xinjiang as well. And we see images of Shiva in the Dunhuang Dan caves and Kizil caves as well. And then we see uh, Shiva in the, in the Slavic world as well as uh, Shiv Bhag or as the god Shiva. And I would imagine that uh, Kashmiri missionaries must have gone both in both east towards China, which, are, which is so amply documented because all those texts were preserved. Before the, the Khotani's kingdom fell, they arranged for all these texts to be sealed and they were unsealed only a hundred years ago. Now we don't have the details of how these missionaries went uh, westwards because we see uh, these divinities. For example, um, uh, Parjanya or Parjanya is one of the divinities, one of the forms of Indra, which that we see, of course, in the Rig Veda, there are hymns to it, but in Nilmat Quran also, Parjanya is mentioned. And uh, Parjanya is the main divinity of the entire Slavic world, all of East Europe in the name Parkonas, which everybody accepts is Parjanya. So there's all kinds of amazing coming together uh, intellectually and in terms of understanding that is taking place not only in Kashmir, because in Kashmir, the great Utpaldev or Abhinav Gupta and others are talking about also the Buddha tradition. And then they are, what they're saying is that, look, the problem with your analysis where you say that everything is momentary, you know, as in the uh, Abhidharma or Yogacara tradition, because that was quite influential. They said for memory itself, uh, for one to connect the past with the present, you know, that's what memory is all about. Uh, you need something who can 
uh, leap across these two moments. So there's got to be something which persists over this time uh, span or this time duration. And that is what Shiva is. So in other words, what Abhinav Gupta and the other masters did was to make the point that a lot of the Buddhist analysis is fine, but it falls short in its ability to explain what memory is, to explain where sense comes in. And as a, um, as a modern day scientist, as somebody who works on both computer science and quantum mechanics, I can tell you that um, all the contemporary work uh, in these fields uh, cannot explain, explain consciousness. Although there are people who are coming up with different models, there are computer scientists who believe that as uh, machines become more complex, uh, at some point, suddenly they'll be conscious. No, that cannot happen because what consciousness requires is something which stands apart from the processes. You know, for example, you and I, we have changed over the last many years. Our body, every cell, um, according to doctors, changes every two, three years. So we are not the same physical body. And even our memories are gone. We don't remember everything that has happened to us, but we still are sure we are the same individual, right? And that is the Shiva, Shiva hood in us. And it's nothing new in my view. Kashmir Shaivism is not a break from the old Vedic tradition because you have that famous uh, reference in one of the Vedic hymns, and it also occurs in Kathopanishad, I believe, where uh, there is a mention of these two birds on a tree, and one of them eats the fruit, the other is just watching. You know, this is the mind and the self. The self doesn't eat, the self is the sakshi, is the witness, right? And, and, you know, the proof that there is one Shiva is when you watch a movie, a great movie, you start crying, you identify yourself with the actors, or you read a great book, um, you know, War and Peace, Dostoevsky, anybody, you know, great master, no matter what culture, you get into the skin of the character. And you, at that moment, are 100% sure that you are that person. And you cry, or you're watching Ram Leela, or you're reaching, you're watching some great episode. You may even know the story, but that mood comes upon you. And that's when you are able to slip out of all the covering around your mind, which is a part of your um, Nama Rupa, right? Your autobiographical journey. But we are not, what your true self is, is beyond Nama Rupa. And that's what um, Kashmir Shaivism gives us a way to connect to. And it's beautiful. And the greatest Buddhist masters also acknowledge it. When you talk to the great masters, when they have heard all these lectures by Buddhologists and saying how this one is this, the other is this. And when you talk to them in person, they say, of course, you know, this is what academics say, but in reality, it's the same. This is true. So let us... Uh not obsessed with the dichotomy anymore. Let's just talk about practice because that's where I'm oriented, practice oriented. And I think a lot of people want to know uh, what are the specific practices that teach us how to uh, process our emotions and how to work with our emotions. And I think to a large degree from what I'm given to understand, 
um, uh, these are living traditions today uh, only in the Buddhist uh, in Buddhist lineages such as Chod. Chod is a practice C H O D, uh, and that is that specifically trains us to work with that. And then I think certain aspects of Lam Rim also uh, teach us. Uh, how to process those. So Buddhism is very, in its current form and how it's evolved over the centuries, is very mind-oriented, is very emotion-oriented. Whereas Hinduism, uh, with a few exceptions, like uh, you know Ramana and Nisargadatta and Krishnamurti and others, who, who actually came to the essence, the heart of things, as in how you know, concepts are one thing, but when you get to the core of your being, what is it all about? And what are we talking about here? How do you train the mind? How do you train your emotions? And what is it in our day-to-day -day life that we must keep? Because you can get lost in words and concepts and scriptures and manuscripts and intellectual arguments. And I mean, this can go on forever. You know, you get one PhD and two PhDs and three PhDs and four PhDs. And at the end of it, you're a depressed train wreck. And you haven't understood anything. You know, <laughs> so, so this is what I'm trying to get beyond that. Can you sh maybe shed some light now in Hindu Dharma? I know that Chod originated in Hindu Dharma, in fact, in, in, in Shaivite practice. And whether Abhinavacharya taught that now in his in the Rasa, in Rasa theory. And he talks about how these are portals, you know. The, that sense of ecstasy and joy in creating art and witnessing art. He talks about rasa. So this is an intrinsic part of it. But um, what do you talk when, when you say feeding the demons? And this is a recurring, recurring image in, uh, in, in Tibetan Buddhism and also in Hinduism, the charnel ground, the crematorium, where you do the sh shavasadhana. You know, what, is the, what are the metaphoric implications of that for the mind and the emotions? Well, this is what I wanted to talk about. Yeah. Well, the, it's mind's uh, tendency to, to grasp, to control, to possess. And that idea of possession is feeding the demons. The demons are the asuras, as I mentioned. Every human being uh, has both asuras and devas. And there's got to be that manthan that is to be done. So how do you control the asuras within you is the question. Is that what you're asking? Now, there are so many different ways. You mentioned some uh, sadhanas. So one, can, one has to have a sadhana. There are two elements of the sadhana. One is, of course, um, uh, practice, um, tapas. But the other is to be humble. What feeds the demons is ahankar. You know, no matter how much of chanting or sadhana you do, if you have ahankar, you're going to go down. This is precisely what Krishna, for example, teaches in the Bhagavad Gita. Humility, detachment. Detachment is what reduces ahankar. The moment you detach and you can observe yourself doing whatever you're doing, then you can see yourself as no different from everybody else. So if you were to ask me, what is the way? It is that of detachment. And that, and it's, it's, a, it's something that is learned. And 
of course, sometimes one is born with it. Uh, sometimes it's a part of the uh, part of the temperament. Some people are more observers, but then you could be an observer and then also learn to be a person of action. So there's different ways. Now there could be also tantric ways. There are many different uh, tantric methods. You could look within you. Um, you do Sri Vidya, for example, and that's a very very powerful method which has been studied by people or used by different people, including Shankara. You know, there are three foci or points of focus in the body uh, at the root of the uh, spinal cord, which is the genitalia, then uh, near the sternum, near the heart, because that's the other lot of, uh, um, lot of uh, nerves coming from there. Yeah. And the third is the, uh, the eyebrows. These three granthis, or collection of nerves at the physical level, but which has a corresponding psychological hierarchy are the Brahma Granthi at the bottom, the Vishnu Granthi in the middle, and the Rudra Granthi at the top. This is really what you mean by Brahma, Vishnu, and Mahesh. You know, they are within you. Now, you have these Puranic stories, and a lot of people uh, believe Puranic stories to be literal truth. But Puranic stories are a doorway. They are a coded way of describing the structure of the, of the self. Self meaning the individual self. And they open up so many doorways. Now, I can't tell you what practice a person should do because um, there are two elements to that. First of all, the person has to be wedded to the idea of uh, progress. Uh, of practice and um, and to be wedded to it, you have to be very disciplined. You could have an artistic sadhana. You could be a musician, you could be a filmmaker, a writer. Any of these things requires a lot of commitment. Or one could even be a businessman. One could be an ordinary person doing ordinary chores in life and still be uh, highly evolved. In fact, uh, my mother used to tell me in Kashmir that there used to be the story of this guy who's a servant in a joint family, and he's really a he's really a person who's who's extremely wise, who's who knows a lot, but he doesn't show that to everybody, to all the women in the joint family, women and men. Seems like a uh, like a simpleton, right? So I think there could be different ways, and. Uh, people have to find their own first of all they have to find a way which they like there's got to be an aesthetic beauty to it and that's where kashmir shaivism devoted a lot of a um, lot of uh, uh, energy if you will a lot of attention to aesthetics to beauty and that joins up with what i call that kashmiri sensibility of the arts of music you know avinav gupta also wrote on Nati Shastra. Uh, he had a commentary, he wrote on music, he wrote on other things outside of uh, uh, his uh, deep um, philosophy or critique of the Shaiva texts. And that is what uh, makes Kashmir a unique place, this joining of different strands uh, of uh, experience that a person has in one's life. And, uh, and that is something that got communicated um, 
in our upbringing and we see that when Kashmiris were sort of banished from the valley the first time in the 1300s and they went to the, through the Himalayas to Himachal, to Uttarakhand, to Nepal. And according to historians of art, a lot of the art went down with them, including Kangra painting and, um, and the sculpture. They were great at sculpture as well. You know, the sculptures of Kali and the goddesses in Nepal that you see are connected to this uh, Himalayan tradition. So I think that's what is beautiful and that's what one needs in modern life, a balancing. Because if you don't balance, any particular single sadhana can, um, can uh, if you're not lucky, reach a dead end, which is what uh, Narad tells Yudhishthir, that once you reached an end and you reach a point of frustration or loss of meaning, that's when if you're totally in it and you are truly committed, if you have that sankalpa, because if you have that sankalpa, then the world will uh, fall in place for you. And then suddenly all doors open and you're able to walk on water, so to speak. So that's what's required, a total commitment. If you have, if you have total commitment, nobody can stop you. This is what the Purana is all, all about. Why does Indra's rule um, uh, from time to time get threatened? Because there is some common mortal on earth. And these are all metaphors, you know, common mortal on earth who's doing such sadhana that no, nobody can stop that person. Nobody can stop that person. So anybody can find it. It's not that uh, this meaning, uh, finding of this meaning is impossible, uh, but uh, it requires tremendous desire. Ichha shakti. It's one of those shaktis, as you correctly pointed out, which has to be harnessed. Thank you. So I think, uh, yeah, I think we have uh, enough for today. And uh, thank you for <laughs> uh, holding forth on these subjects. Thanks for listening to the Big Turtle Podcast. You can find us on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. See you next time.